Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's back to school this morning for Education Secretary Gavin Williamson after he was forced to make a U-turn last night on the exam results being published this month for GCSE and A-level students at school. The dreaded algorithm-driven modelling system has been ditched after Scotland's Education Minister John Swinney was forced to abandon the grading method in a speech before Parliament yesterday in Scotland. Over in Edinburgh, things are not looking so great for Nicola Sturgeon, it must be said. She's finally proved herself. Uh, to be something other than perfect. And, of course, her critics uh, are lapping it up. We'll be getting the verdict from John Rensel, chief political commentator from The Independent, who called it absolutely right yesterday, which is why he's on this show, which, of course, is the fastest-growing show uh, on this particular planet on which we live, because he said, surely Gavin Williamson will have to do the same thing as soon as John Swinney opened his mouth. And while originally Gavin didn't look like he was going to do it, he was eventually forced to do it. But we also want to hear, of course, from you parents out there as well, because it turns out your teenagers can pretty much choose their own results, which, after everything that's happened this year, is surely the best outcome. I can't imagine anybody wishing to make political capital out of the fact that the government has actually done something sensible. Surely they should be praised, shouldn't they? Of course, that's not happening in The Guardian, but that's another story. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be playing you a clip from Plank of the Week, which was recorded yesterday. Sadly, just a few hours before Ben and Jerry's ice cream made complete fools of themselves and their company by tweeting out about the illegal migrants coming to the UK in a preachier, holier-than-thou episode, which would be funny were it not quite so hypocritical and pathetic. Only two years ago, Ben and Jerry's was the subject of an investigation into the use of slave labour at their dairy farms in Vermont, and they aren't the little independent family business they pretend to be either. They're owned by the global giant Unilever, which was coincidentally in the news last month because of claims that their beauty products designed to lighten skin and sold in Asia are actually racist. Marvellous, isn't it? Oh, of course, there's the odd uh, poisoning episode as well they seem to have got involved in. So well done, Ben and Jerry's, uh, for putting yourselves firmly on the plank list, firmly on the list of ice cream companies that lots of people will no longer touch with a barge pole, never mind a spoon. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, archaeologist and historian Neil Oliver joins us with his take on the week, and we'll bring you the latest from the Home Office, Circo, and the government's efforts to stop those boats arriving on our shores. I have got a whole 
sheaf of documents, I have to tell you, uh, which I'm going to be pouring over over the course of the next few days. Immigration statistics, uh, numbers of asylum seekers coming in, exactly where they're coming from, exactly where they're going to. Uh, we have, I have, I have to tell you, we have unearthed a literal treasure trove of information. And unlike most organisations, we're actually going to get some facts out there for you so you can judge what is going on. Plus, in homeschooling today, we'll teach you how to make chocolate. Last uh, Yesterday, we taught you how to make ice cream. How prescient was that? I wonder if there's some chocolate company that's going to come out later on today uh, and start preaching to us about what we should be doing uh, around the world to save everyone. You're listening to me, Mike Graham. It's the fastest great radio station on the planet. Of course, it's Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So most newspapers this morning leading with the, the story about schools because, I mean, the one thing that we do know now, I think, and I think we should accept uh, as fact... That any bloke that walks into a room, any woman that walks into a room and goes, I've got a great idea. I've come up with this modelling uh, model, um, basically, which will, pre- which will produce results, the like of which you've never seen, uh, because we'd like to use this modelling scheme in order to predict what's likely to happen. If anybody says that, immediately lock them in the nearest broom cupboard and don't let them out uh, until they promise not to say it ever again. Let's talk to John Rental, who is, of course, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, I was very impressed with your immediate reaction yesterday to John Swinney's speech in which you said, quite rightly, surely there is no no other choice but for the British government, in in the guise of Gavin Williamson, to do exactly the same thing. And so it proved to be. Well, I mean, it's very generous of you, Mike, but actually uh, Gavin Williamson has done something slightly different because Mm. the uh, the English system is, uh, is different because what they haven't, uh, they haven't done is just take the teachers uh, assessments um, I mean they've used teacher assessments for some pupils but not for most of them most mm. of them are just getting uh, just getting an average based on uh, on past results right. and you know past test tests that, that these children have taken um, uh, and and Gavin Williamson's offered this sort of backstop scheme where if you don't like your result you can uh, you can have the result of your mocks instead but given yeah. that <laughs> all the schools I know, that run mocks uh, tend to mark mark pupils down heavily for the mocks uh, in order to sort of give them a uh, sort of kick up the backside so yes. that they get on with some work before before the real exams. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, my my son who was doing GC well, was due to do GCSEs uh, this summer uh, was basically told it would be at the beginning it was it was going to be a, a, a measurement with the mocks compared to as well the, the teacher's own assessment. And then suddenly they came up with this modelling plan a few weeks back, which seems to come from nowhere. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really puzzled as to why governments have, have got this kind of, uh, they're sort of wedded to this idea of, of scientific modelling, because as far as I can see, it doesn't seem to work terribly well. <laughs> modelling models, yeah. yeah. Well, it, well it, it depends what you're trying to achieve by it. No, obviously it doesn't recognise the individual achievement of that uh, of that pupil in an exam, because mm. the exam didn't happen. So the question is, how do you then fairly uh, assess that pupil's uh, attainment? And obviously, the, the way you don't do that is just by asking their teachers what grade they would have got, because you know, teachers, you know, being human, will tend to give people a better grade than, the, than they would actually, actually get in the exam. Right. So you do have to adjust the teacher's expectations somehow and the only fair way to do that is to look at the at, at past tests that that pupil's taken uh and and where they were heading but uh, you're right i mean the point is as soon as you get into making up marks 
either you're just going to open up arguments. I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's but what John's talking I mean, about. I mean, I, I, it's a very long time since I did any kind of exam whatsoever. Um, I dare say it might be for you as well. Um, I seem to remember that basically you had to try and gain yourself, I don't know, you know, two P's and a C to get to university or whatever it was. Um, uh, O-levels, you had to get a pass grade, which was acceptable. It seemed a lot more straightforward. You know, it was like you took an exam, they marked it, uh, and they told you what you did. Yeah, well, they didn't. They, they, when we were when we were taking exams, Mike, they didn't just sort of abolish them all one year because of a because of a virus. Right. Um, so this is this is an unprecedented situation. What what I don't what what surprised me this morning was Nick Gibb, who's the uh, education minister, uh, saying that they hadn't consulted the universities about uh, about this this plan because I mean that's obviously the tricky bit, isn't it? Is is because that's why people want their A level results because they've got offers from universities and what universities always do is they they make more offers than they got places for because they know they're not all going to be accepted except that this year um that you know a lot of a lot of pupils are going to get better grades than uh, uh, than than the universities are expecting so right. how the universities are going to create magically new places out of nowhere is uh, is a mystery i mean one of the places they're going to get them from obviously is they're going to be fewer overseas students but that's not going to apply to all universities right. well a lot of universities aren't even opening are they for actual students they're not actually going to take real students into the buildings or into their campuses uh, until perhaps the year after but the other thing that i find quite interesting about this is that i was listening to a vice chancellor yesterday uh, talking about the rights of, of of pupils and students and that apparently if and this was before gavin williamson decided to, to do this and make this much better for the students that if you didn't like your uh, uh, your assessment you didn't like the grade that they'd given you you could actually insist on seeing what the result of your mock was and you could also insist on seeing what your teacher's assessment was and if they didn't give it to you he was saying you know basically there might be a flood of lawsuits that people might suddenly start hiring lawyers because they're now being prevented from proceeding with their education because of some ridiculous model well, I mean, that was happening already, Mike. I mean, people were increasingly appealing against uh, against grades and demanding to see the original papers, mm. and uh, in, and they have a right to do that under the under the current system. Yeah. Um, question. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact that uh, the marks are going to be assigned by some kind of complicated algorithm uh, is going to make it much more difficult, and is going to open it all uh, wide to uh, to legal challenges. Uh, but the government's the government's attitude to that is well, <clears throat> you know, we'll just shove that onto the universities, and the universities can sort it out. Right. I mean, what's the status of universities nowadays? Because of course, you know, Tony Blair famously wanted more and more people to go to higher education, wanted a more educated kind of uh, uh, a country to live in, basically. But for an awful lot of kids, university is not the answer. And we've heard a lot of people lately talking about how you know you might be better off learning a trade, or you might be better off getting an apprenticeship of some kind. Is that having any effect yet on the on the higher education sector? Well, I mean, Gavin Williamson um, gave a speech last month where he formally abandoned that 50% target. I'm not mm. sure if actually the government ever formally adopted the 50% target, but there, there you go. Mm. It's been abandoned more times than uh, <laughs> the, the, the thingy in the, in the channel, I think. Right. And um, Gavin Williamson said all the usual things that education secretaries say, which is that he wants um, provision and esteem for those who don't choose not to go to university or don't uh, don't want to go to university, um, you know they're going to be treated equally um, to to those who do. Mm. Um, that that's what people always say. It's very difficult to do it in practice because you know everybody knows that there is 
you know, although it's not as great as it used to be, there is still a premium in the jobs market uh, if you've got a degree. Yeah. But I mean, who knows what the jobs market can look like come the end of this year? Because at the moment, it's looking rather like there won't be much of a jobs market for a while because so many people are going to be looking for a job who already have had one, but have now find, found themselves you know, unemployed. Yeah, but I mean, that all that means is it's going to increase the extent to which you get overqualified people uh, doing underqualified yes. jobs. I mean, having a degree will still give you an advantage in the jobs market, and that will especially that will be especially cruel and uh, um, unfair in in a jobs market where you know you've got millions of millions of people who are unemployed. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I, I suppose what my point was was that if you've been in a job and and been out of work for say six months. Um, but but you're quite skilled at a particular business that you're in. Um, you're rather like more likely to be employed than say somebody just coming out of university, aren't you? Well, yeah, that 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 is true. I mean, as someone who um, who graduated from university in uh, 1980 in the middle of a really deep recession, mm. um, all I can say is, you know, it it does get better eventually, and uh, I do. I do hope young people don't uh, don't get too discouraged because you know I mean the economy is is bouncing back. I mean today's figures were backward looking. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is know, it, isn't it? I mean, it's the glass half empty brigade once again, isn't it? I mean, we're already hearing the recession that we are reporting on is actually over, and we're coming out yeah, of the well, recession, uh, and we're now already expecting bigger growth in July uh, when those figures come out next month. But so, but but those who are not like you and I, forward thinking, John, uh, would say, oh, yeah, but this is the worst recession <laughs> since, since you know, uh, the crash of 2008. Well, apparently not. Well, there are uh, there are doom mongers around, uh, Mike. There are. Uh, who, want to, who want to talk the country down. Um, but actually, you know, everything is not uh, everything's not terrible. I mean, I, I, you know, you've got to accept that, you know, it's very difficult for some people. Mm. But you know, on on the whole, I don't I don't think we should overdo the uh, the, the doom mongering. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland because obviously, you know, this is the first sort of I would say um, public. Uh, event in which she has not been painted as the queen of common sense and the the only woman in politics who seems to have a brain. You know, there's. Her, <laughs> I think she's been slightly tarnished by this, hasn't she? Well, you would you would hope so, in a sense that the you know the SNP record on education in Scotland has been uh, lamentable. Yeah. Actually, it's been in power since uh, in Scotland since two thousand and seven, yeah. and education has developed. Uh, they they've presided over um, the most remarkable decline in Scotland's reputation as as the home of uh, of good schools, mm. um, and you know this is the sort of this is only the latest in 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 a, in a litany of failure, um, but you know Teflon Teflon Nicola is is probably going to come out of it reasonably well because i mean she did the she did the straightforward and honest thing which was to apologize uh, and she got john swinney just to execute a completely political u-turn abandon the the plan altogether uh, and just allow uh, allow the grades to go up this year yes but it seems that the more you look into the reasoning why they did it in the first place the more sinister it becomes because it was not about um making life sort of fairer for everybody it was about proving a point which is never a good idea, I don't think, when you're dealing with children. Well, it was about politics, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, you know, because because they had raised expectations and then and and then dashed them mm. uh, and realised that you know politically the only thing they could do was just abandon the whole uh, the whole downgrading uh, scheme mm. um, and allow the allow the marks to go up. And you know that means 
you know that mean, that takes the sting out of it in the short term but it yeah. does create enormous problems for employers and universities because you know you've got all these uh, all these higher marks uh, coming out of scottish schools uh, and people will be scratching their heads about you know how how valuable they really are absolutely and finally john let's talk about the migrant uh, crisis because that's the big story uh, of the week really uh, in terms of how the government's dealing with it i've been saying all week that this is a dangerous story uh, for boris johnson and the government because if they don't sort out this illegal immigration uh, you know there will be a massive backlash and i can say that uh, with some um, assurity because of the, the reaction that people are, are, are having on this uh, on this very radio station chris Filt went across yep. to france yesterday got a bunch of kind of promises out of the French government. What's your take on, on whether this will stop or whether we'll still be talking about it uh, come the end of August? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's very simple, isn't it? I mean, uh, the, the, the bottom line is that we pay the French to patrol uh, their coastline and mm. to try and stop, uh, stop these people coming over. I mean, that's, that's the crude uh, political reality of it. The yeah. French have no particular interest in trying to stop this traffic except that you know in the end we did persuade them that you know unless they got a grip on uh, on it they they were going to create more sort of shanty towns around calais like yeah. the, the Calais jungle uh which they they don't want either but i mean they don't particularly want to have to deal with people who are flocking to um northern france mm. trying to get into the uk right. uh they don't you know th those people don't particularly want to be in france the french don't particularly want them in france um, so you can see why the temptation for the French is to um, is is to go through the motions, but uh, but not be too stringent. But mm. you know, in the end, that is going to be the political uh, argument that has to be had. Yes, I mean, I'm wondering whether if they get to pass on the message that they get greeted by these ghastly woke. Uh, political correspondents and reporters from Sky TV waving at them as soon as they arrive anywhere near Dover. That might put them off, and they might say, "Actually, no, it's not worth it." <laughs> Are you okay? What? Are you all right? I mean, you know, it's, I've never seen a worse uh, episode of journalism in my life, I don't think. It's a, it's a thought, Mike. It's a thought. But the problem is uh, the UK is a very attractive place for people to uh, come to. And, you know, there are genuine refugees um, who want to come and claim asylum here because it's a, it's a place where you know perhaps they, you know, they they like the fact that we speak english they you know they we've got a reputation for having having a reasonable jobs market although obviously that's a problem at the moment mm. um and you know they will they will keep trying to, to to come here and you know if they don't come by by inflatable dinghy they will try to get into the back of lorries yeah. i mean the, the one of the reasons why there are more people coming by small boats is because there's less uh, lorry traffic coming through the right. uh, the Tunnel yeah. And also, it's relatively easy to do. It's a relatively short crossing. I mean, we keep being told they're risking their lives, but it looks pretty flat out there. And I know if you do it when the tide is right oh. and when the weather is okay, um, it's not much of a risk. Because if it was a risk, uh, we'd be seeing people falling out of them and we'd be, we'd be rescuing them properly rather than just <laughs> seeing them kind of gently, you know, pulling into Dover. So, you know, I, I think that the, that the answer is, is effectively to make, make it less likely for them to be able to stay here once they get here and once they know that's the case then they won't bother well yes uh, but of course that is very difficult and all governments have tried to do that over the years uh and uh been been frustrated i mean that's why theresa may mm. wanted to um have asylum applications made uh, out of country yeah it's, uh, but that's very difficult to enforce and once uh, people are here they are entitled to claim 
asylum. Uh, and you can't just sort of put them on a plane or a, or, no, or a boat. No, but what you can uh, do, presumably, is you can uh, you can you can get their applications transferred and and sorted quicker, so they're not hanging yeah. around for ten years waiting for an application to be decided upon, and then when it is decided yeah. upon, uh, they get to appeal for another ten years. Yeah, well, that that has been the problem. I mean, there's just been a a backlog um, for decades yeah. um, of dealing with. Uh, dealing with asylum applications. Uh, I mean, Tony Blair's government briefly got on top of it, and then, uh, uh, but it 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 doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be the most efficient part of the British state. That is abs- absolutely true. Mm. Well, we shall see how it all plays out. As ever, John, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. If you've got kids who are affected uh, by this decision by Gavin Williamson, love to hear from you. Love to know what it is that you want them to do as well, because are you actually, uh, as a parent, live, uh, you know, encouraging your kids not to bother going to university because it might be actually better to get them into a job. It might be better to get them onto that sort of, you know, employment gravy train sooner rather than later, because if you send them off to university for three years, I mean, God knows uh, what the place is going to be looking like in terms of the economy, in terms of opportunity, in terms of everything that they are training themselves up to do. You may as well just send them out to work, won't you? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, I know we talked a lot about the weather yesterday, uh, and I know that not every part of the UK is as hot as it is down here in the southeast and in the southwest. But I was going to tell you what, we're going to talk about water coming up in a little while, because in parts of southeast England, people are without water. Right. Water companies who are among some of the most useless organisations I think I've ever had the uh, unfortunate temerity to come across. Right. These are people who have one job to make sure that you as an individual, a human being, have access to running water. That's all they have to do. They have to make sure that you get water and they have to make sure that there's a drain somewhere uh, where the water disappears. I've never quite understood why they charge the same amount of money to remove the water that you use uh, as they do to bring you the water that you use as well. So you have two water bills, basically. You have the water bill that allows you to get water into the house and then they give you the same amount, double, basically, to take it away doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, It's like somebody selling you a shirt uh, and then telling you that you have to pay double uh, because you have to take the shirt away. I don't know why they would do that. But they've run out of water, right? They're issuing warnings to people saying that there may well have to be a hosepipe ban uh, because people might be using water for unreasonable methods and for reasons that they shouldn't be using water. Now, um, I don't know why people would be doing that, but it is very hot. And to have no water in any situation in a heat wave like this is absolutely criminal. People will be suffering, health will be suffering, and it's simply not good enough. So we'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on. But right now, let me give you some statistics, because we have been very, very dogged about this story uh, with um, the migrant crisis that's been going on ever since Nigel Farage appeared on this very show uh, nearly two weeks ago now, uh, where he revealed that something like 48,000 asylum seekers or illegal migrants were living in hotels, were being put up in hotels by British companies who were being paid vast amounts 
amounts of money uh, by the public purse to put them up in those hotels. Uh, we've been asking questions of Serco. We've been asking questions of some of the other companies involved. Um, we've been asking questions of the Home Office. And yesterday uh, we got this uh, a statement from the Home Office who say this. We take the well-being of asylum seekers and the local communities in which they live seriously. We have a statutory duty to accommodate people seeking asylum in the UK who would otherwise be destitute. This has been the case since 1999. Since March, the number of people within the asylum system has risen. This is because we temporarily ceased ending asylum support for those whose claims have been either granted or refused. This is to ensure people were not made homeless during lockdown and able to follow social distancing guidelines. So what they're basically saying, um, they normally would end support for people whose asylum claims had been rejected and turned down. They now say, as a result, we have temporarily housed a number of people in hotels. This is regularly reviewed in line with public health guidance. Well, that's all very well. However, what it means is that people who have been put up in these hotels at the expense of, of the public purse have been there now for a good three months. And as we heard from Howard uh, up there in Northumberland, uh, Tyne and Weir rather, it turns out uh, that they're in a rather nice seafront hotel uh, as they are sometimes in different parts of the country. We say that's near Sunderland. We know about Cheshire and Chester. We know about York. We know about Leeds. We know about Birmingham. Uh, we know about Bromsgrove. Uh, we know about Bristol. And we know about London. There's an awful lot going on out there. Let me give you some statistics. In 2010, the number of people claiming asylum in the United Kingdom was 22,644. In 2019, which is the latest year for which they have a full year's statistics, that had jumped to double, 44,494, right? Now, what we don't have yet is the figure for the last three months, and clearly there's been an awful lot of people coming in the last three months. But for the year ending March 2020, the figure overall of people claiming asylum in this country is 43,883. Now, it may come as no surprise to you that we've also asked for a breakdown of which countries these people are coming from. And you will maybe maybe not surprised to know that the large bulk of people coming uh, into this country are from basically uh, three top countries, Iran, Albania and Iraq. 4,853 from Iran, 3,453 from Albania, 2,971 from Iraq. We can go through the whole list, but we're not going to do that now. But this is where we have a problem, because basically we are offering uh, a sucker to people from uh, Albania. Is there a war going on there? No. How about Iran? Is there a war going on there? No. Iraq? There has been trouble there in the past, but there isn't a war going on there at the moment. So all these people who are fleeing war-torn countries are not actually fleeing war-torn countries, are they? Interesting. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now it's Tuesday, uh, no it's not, it's Wednesday, so it's time to say a very good day to uh, Neil Oliver. Neil, a very good morning to you, welcome. Good morning, Mike, thanks for having me. Not at all, very nice to talk to you again. I mean, Scotland isn't always in the national news, but I did think of you yesterday when John Swinney was making his little about turn uh, at the dispatch box in uh, in Holyrood. Um, you must be looking at it and shaking your head with wonder. Yes, um, it was very it was very distressing to look on at. Um, you know, obviously, our our kids here. I, I can really speak most directly, I suppose, to the schools that my family's involved with. Yeah. We're in Stirling. The kids go to a, a state school, uh, a state high school here in, in the town. 
Um, and I've always, we've got a great experience with, with the school. And I think, you know, you sometimes feel as if the teachers are coping in spite of the instructions that they get from government, mm. you know, rather than receiving much in the way of constructive <laughs> help there. You, right. you sometimes feel as if the teachers and, are, are, are sort of having to swim against the current and do their very best, which they do, you know, so we don't have any complaints. And from very early on in the lockdown, the story that we were hearing was that, uh, you know, our, our daughter was, was caught up in the whole um, uh, higher exams story. Uh, and we were told to begin with that the, the results from their uh, prelims uh, would basically translate broadly speaking, into their results because they weren't able, they hadn't been able to sit the actual hires because of the, the constraints mm. of lockdown. Uh, and that sounded eminently sensible to us, you, you know, and for what of the actual hires, well, clearly the, the prelims would seem to be the best indicator. Uh, and our daughter had had done well in her, her prelims. And, and as things worked out, she did, she the, the results that she got reflected the results that she had got in her prelims. But then, of course, the, the, the wider story started to unfold in the, that day and in the days that followed. And as you say, there was this thing about the, a, an algorithm or some kind of modelling mm. had been applied. And we couldn't make head nor tail of it because we thought, at the very least, wouldn't you just consider each individual pupil as an individual and, and look at the results that they had got in their prelims mm. and, and reflect that across to their final result. And th this idea that irrespective of individual performance, whole schools uh, were seeing, uh, you know, a blanket lowering of results uh, to coincide and to, and to match up with a computer model. Yeah. It just felt like another, you know, we've got the early modeling for the, the worst case scenario for COVID-19, half a million deaths, worst case scenario based on computer modeling. And, mm. You do wonder when we'll get to the point where we, we trust individual teachers or, or the relevant professionals in each case rather than trusting uh, algorithms to do that job yeah. for us. Well, this is and, where, this is to where decide, I wanted... to decide with the algorithm rather than to side with the individual teachers who were screaming out, saying that this pupil has done so well, yeah. you know, got four A's or five A's or whatever, and now they're looking at, you know, significantly downgraded results. And right. to begin with, the teachers were being ignored. I know. Well, this is what I wanted to talk to you about in a way as well, because this computer modelling obsession that, that the country seems to have uh, is being sort of filtered through various um, methodologies by scientists. And they're almost making out that, you know, a computer model is science when it's not. It's no more really than um, a punt on a horse in a betting shop. Yeah, they're trusting. They seem to be trusting something that on the, on the evidence sometimes doesn't seem to be trustworthy. No. We've got, it's not just in the education field, as I say, in relation to the lockdown, there was modelling used and, uh, you know, look at all the, the punditry that goes on around all sorts of things in the run up to elections for, or for referendums, the predictions that are made based on modelling. You know, they don't, the modelling doesn't seem to be as reliable as is being made out. And yet it's being, it seems to be being trusted more and more. But I felt apart from anything else in, in relation to the, to the, the higher exams, the kids have been through such an, an, an anxiety-inducing time. The stress of the lockdown, the impact of all of that on them, uh, you know, not being able to go to school, not being able to see friends or to socialise in any normal way. And it seemed utter lunacy that in the, in the heat of all of that and all of that distress, 
that a decision was taken around the exam results that are so crucial to, to young people's lives and future prospects to choose now of all times to try something that could be at best described as experimental. Just that seemed like insanity to us. Mm. Wouldn't you trust the teachers, you know, who had who had looked at the well, they'd marked that the children's results had been marked at, at prelim, uh, and then there had been projections made based on the teacher's experience of each pupil in in turn. You projected grades, what they, how they would have been expected to perform in relation, looking at their course coursework and all the rest of it. And the, the teachers are real human beings with real personal relationships with the pupils in their care yeah. uh, and would seem to be the people uh, ideally placed uh, to, to make the appropriate adjudications, but especially at a time of such stress. You want to, I would have, if I was going to err one way, I would have wanted to give the children a lift, yes. maybe across the board, maybe a boost. Mm. If I was going to do anything in terms of a, an artificial application of, of predictions and all the rest of it, my inclination would have been to, to give all of those pupils in these stressful times uh, something something to celebrate right. rather well, than to pull them the other way, just to give them even more to cope with in such a stressful yeah. time. And particularly the way that it's all happened as well, because as you say, I think a lot of kids, and mine included, have been quite confused by the whole process of the lockdown and the whole business of not going to school, not seeing their friends, not really having any structure uh, in their day, not really knowing whether they're ever going to go back to school. Because, I mean, you know, we don't really know what's going on as adults and we're supposed to be relatively well informed. You know, you wonder what's going through their heads sometimes, you know. You talked about last week, you know, one of your kids being homesick for the way things used to be. Um, it may well be that that never is the same again. Yeah, we've got, we're, we're lucky, you know, we count, you try your, you do count your blessings, don't you, in a yeah. time like this? Yeah. You know, and we've, you know, we had a, we've got a garden, for example, it was as simple as that. We had, we had outdoor space yeah. uh, that we could control, you know, where the, where the kids could be out. We live in a, a relatively rural area where it was easy for us to get out into the, for a dog walk and, and all of the rest of it. Both of us, my wife and I, were, were together with the kids. Uh, we were talking to them all the time. And even at that, there were there were there were low points. There were moments where the kids were were worried, de demonstrably worried. Mm. And you think, what about other people in in other circumstances? You know, people where maybe there's you know, maybe only one only one parent coping with with children at, at such a time, or, or people living where they were only in a only in a flat, or, or cut off from their friends and families for whatever reason. And we've discussed this before, Mike, but yeah. these unseen, unknown consequences that are unfolding now in private. You know, we're not hearing from the people probably who are suffering most. You know, the, the people who are in a dark place at the moment, emotionally, and children who are really suffering, a lot of that will be going on in silence and, you know, and behind closed doors, I'm quite sure. Yeah. And it will be in the months and the years ahead when we start to reap the harvest for this. Uh, and you know, it's it's a, of great concern. We wonder about our own kids, but, you know, people in, in, in lesser circumstances have been under such pressure and there is no end in sight. Mm. There's just this constantly flickering picture before everyone's eyes where of uncertainty, ambiguity, this amorphous future uh, that seems to be being written on the hoof, uh, you know, by those tasked with making the decisions on our behalf. Yeah. And yeah. There will be consequences. 
But at least I still find it difficult to, 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 to take in that no one seems to have got to grips with this whole situation still. You know, I just had a virologist on earlier and he was talking about, well, you know, there could be another two weeks before you see whether uh, there are more infections because we haven't really had any increase in hospital admissions for seven weeks. More people are now dying of flu. And yet there doesn't seem to be anybody who can make policy based upon what we know. Uh, and all they seem to be doing is, is coming up with reasons why we can't do things because we don't know. I think while they've, they've been focused, while the authorities and, and, and the medical professionals have been focused on dealing with a medical situation, and we all, or you know, most of us have, have absorbed that and, and taken it on board that it's a, a completely unique situation that people are dealing with moment by moment. But to begin with, it was, it was talk of a lockdown to flatten the curve, mm. to ensure that the NHS was not overwhelmed that seemed to be achieved. That objective seemed to be met, but there is as yet no end in sight. Right. And well, I think the continued strategy that's in play possibly, probably works from a medical practitioner standpoint. It's no future. For me, for me to contemplate a future of possibly, you know, always being masked, uh, always facing the possibility of a local lockdown or a national lockdown, mm. the toll that that's going to take on people emotionally and obviously the toll that that's going to take on the country economically and from the point of view of society itself, there are there are more things, there are, there are other things to be afraid of apart from COVID-19. Yeah. And this, this single-minded approach at the moment that, that, that seems to have no end in sight uh, I think it is, is inevitably taking its toll on the population, on the economy, on society. And, you know, we might, you know, it's like, it's like that. I often think about that line in, in Shawshank, you know, where uh, uh, one of the characters says, you know, you get busy living or you get busy dying. Yeah. You know, this is this sustained limbo. You can't live in limbo. And societies and economies can't. We might, surely there has to be a possibility that we have to contemplate living with Yes. The virus and well, that's what I think. Forever. Well, that's what I think. And that's why I'm sort of disappointed that we haven't got to that point yet, because if we haven't got to it yet, you know, will we ever get to it? Well, there's no sign of it. It's it's a sustained limbo. Um, I'm feeling it. You know, we're all feeling it here. Everyone that I speak to is gradually running out of uh, patience yeah. or, the, or, the, or the energy to, to sustain uh, this what was supposed to be a temporary situation and while we all understand that the authorities are trying to fight something that they evidently fear hugely they fear this more than any other contagion that they've ever encountered in, in modern times um and we understand that but this this situation i don't think is is livable we might have to come to terms with living with the virus and not hiding from yeah. it forever Yes, no, I totally agree with that. And, and you wrote at the weekend in the Sunday Times about the uh, Lebanon explosion, which was shocking, I think, to anyone that saw it. Um, and, and even now when they replay the, the actual blast itself, it's, it's quite a remarkable piece of video and historic and all of those things. But, but you pointed out that it's kind of um, it's synonymous in a way with what's been happening this year. It's sort of, you know, there's such a bizarre year uh, that, that it doesn't even seem that odd. I was I was hit by it. I was I was struck by what happened in Lebanon in a way that I would never have predicted. 
Lebanon is not a place I've ever visited. Uh-huh. I don't have any connections to it in terms of friends or family. Uh, but and I'm sure it was a symptom of of the, the sustained uh, you know strangeness of 2020 so far. Yeah. Uh, but that happening to those people, I, I was profoundly affected. But not least, you talk about that that video that you're playing now. The fact that we now are able to watch these things uh, almost almost as they happen, I think is uh, it, it's it, it reminds us yet again how small a world it has become. You know, where you can look on at a tragedy happening almost live, almost in real time. I'm always something changed. I think with the, with nine eleven when yeah. we watched the, the film, the film, the endlessly repeated film of the planes going into the towers and watched the towers fall, and that feeling of having to witness things that maybe a generation or two ago you'd only have read about in the newspapers, yeah. or you might have seen footage of it later, but watching it happen and. As someone with with the kind of interests that I have, you know, I, you know, I'm passionately interested in history and archaeology. And Lebanon is, you know, is a is a, a, a has been a font of so much that has mattered mm. to the wider world and certainly to our world. You know, it's the uh, it's it's Canaan, which you know anyone who's ever been to Sunday school or, or attends church will know about Canaan and the Canaanites. That mm. is Canaan. It was the it was it was Phoenician. Uh, the Phoenicians had their cities there at Sidon and Tyre and Byblos, uh, they, and it was it was in Byblos that the that the Phoenicians developed the alphabet that we all use, right. the alphabet that became Greek and then Latin, and then you know that 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 alphabet was was established there. Phoenicians were coming to Cornwall three and a half thousand years ago in their ships to load up with tin right. to, to make bronze and all of the rest of it. We have been we have uh, connections ties to Lebanon, whether we think about them on a daily basis or not, that go back and beyond the reach of memory. And I remember seeing, uh, you know, footage of, of Lebanon in, in my own lifetime, when it was described as the Switzerland of the Middle East, and Beirut was the was the Paris of yeah. the Middle East. And it was glamorous, and the people are beautiful, male and female. Uh, and and it, it was this beautiful sort of Mediterranean, luxurious world that they seemed to live in, very glamorous. And it, it, it was synonymous with with high living and, and glamour, and and to see a place and it's been brought low by trouble, the terrible civil war, and then you know more recently there's been all sorts of trouble around the politics of Hezbollah and the rest, and to see a place that has been a, a, a bright and shining light of, of civilization, the most culturally and religiously diverse country of the Middle East, uh, and 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 to watch that that explosion happen almost live. And then to understand that that had devastated half of the city, yeah. and unknown numbers of people killed, injured, or left homeless, or, or their lives completely disrupted. It's too close. You know, the, the time when the world was, where there were places that were far away that you could put to the back of your mind. That that has gone now because of the way we cover events and we see footage so quickly. And I thought, oh, these are, these are, you know, it's us. It, it could so easily happen anywhere. Yeah. And, and any any thought that the, the people of Lebanon are, are somehow distant from us and that we can overlook what's happened to them. As I say, it struck me in the gut and I felt it deeply. And if you told me that I would react in that way to something happening in Lebanon, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have predicted it. No. But there you go. And the, the, prob- and the trouble and the trouble is that, you know, when 9-11 happened in New York and, and my, my sister was there at the time, I remember talking to her sort of incessantly for hours on end 
while there were fighter jets flying up and down uh, the island of Manhattan, there were tanks on the streets. You know, America had the money to, to recover. You know, they had this incredible clean-up effort down at the, the south end of Manhattan. They shook, they took all of the, 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 the refuse from the, from the collapsed buildings onto barges, took it all to Staten Island, dumped it uh, in a landfill. The Lebanese, you fear, haven't got the money to do anything like that. So it's going to be a long time before Lebanon is anywhere like what it used to be. Yes, indeed, if ever. Uh, it, it certainly, as you say, doesn't have the infrastructure and the, and the sort of societal and political stability required to embark on a, on a rescue mission, as you described, that was undertaken in, in Manhattan after, after 9-11. But I think for me, the world changed. I think for, for most of our generation, the world changed uh, in an instant and forever with 9-11. Yeah. Uh, and there are so many things, as I say, when I watched that explosion happen in, in Beirut, rightly or wrongly or logically or not, I, I was instantly transported back to what I had felt like when I remember standing in a, we, we went to a pub, but, you know, news started to filter through on, on radio. I was at work and that something had happened in Manhattan. And yeah. Two or three of us went out to a pub on Byers Road in Glasgow uh, and because we knew there'd be televisions. Yeah. And, we, you know, we watched the footage and it was just, the world has never been the same Again, uh, and that feeling of, of of feeling connected to the hurt and, and the grief that, that people go through has been so intensified. You know, if there ever was a time when it was possible to put the suffering of others out of mind because you couldn't see it, that, that time has just gone. Uh, and I, I felt that what was happening to the people in, in Lebanon, it, maybe it was because it came after six months of lockdown and, and just intense feelings and anxiety, but... I felt it as though it was happening to people that I knew mm. uh, and, and the realisation. And, you know, and, and the, again, the, the whole, um, uh, the, whatever you want to call it, the, the migrant crisis or, 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 or illegal immigration or whatever, um, and, and watching, it's becoming so uh, visceral mm. and, and, and emotional and people are affected differently, of course they are. I mean, people respond to these things from either end of a spectrum and also a lot of people somewhere in between the two extremes. Uh, but if, if there was ever a time when we have to accept that the world is small and that other people's cares, we can't dismiss them. It's simply not possible. The world's agonies and other civilizations and populations' agonies are are inside the wall now. You know, we're, we're no longer we're no longer separated one from another. And I, and I, th I think it's it's imperative beyond words that we that we find better ways to talk about it and and face up to the responsibilities that we have for one another. Yes. Um, and at the moment, governments, our government, they're, they're leaving us. We're being left in in these kind of voids where. I don't think I don't think governments in the West have caught up with the fact that there's no longer just a single narrative that they're able to control via the conventional relic media. Mm. People are seeing everything on their phones live every yeah. minute of the day, and they're and they're being left to draw their own conclusions. And, and where where governments aren't honest and straightforward about facts and numbers and plans for the future, the conspiracy theories are sucked into those vacuums, and it's in no one's interests. Uh, and you know, as human beings, it's that John Donne. You know, it's you know, um, any man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. 
that was true when he wrote that. And it's true now. Any man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. And we're, we're, going, to have to, we're going to have to find ways to have the honest, factual conversations because the world's hurt is one now. It's not broken up into, into places that are days and weeks of travel yeah. away as they were in, you know, in antiquity. Uh, you know, the, the agony that happens in Beirut causes tears to be shed, you know, here in Stirling moments later. Yeah. And that is real. And it, we're not going back. Uh, and, and we've got to uh, grow up and mature in the way that we respond to these events. And turning a blind eye and a deaf ear is just regardless of your politics it's not a practical option no it's not but also um i think we also have to move away from from what some people treat it as as a kind of a guilt exercise as well where suddenly you know it must be our fault therefore we must solve it because it may not be possible for us to solve it no, but we, we don't not. we don't necessarily have to solve it it's like conversations you have in a relationship where you go you know i don't want you to solve my problem i just want you to listen to me that's right. It's part of the, that's what I'm talking about. It's that honesty that's required. And we, we, we also do need to face up to the possibility that no one group of people can, can absorb or, or, or uh, in any satisfactory way uh, assuage or, or alleviate the suffering of the, of the world. That's, that is obviously not going to be the case. You know, you can't get all of the, of the world's refugees into a single lifeboat. The, the the world the world has to find ways to to provide the places and the infrastructures to, to look after our burgeoning populations. You know they can't everyone can't gather in one place regardless of what that one place is, and that's part of the void that's being left, part of the vacuum that's being left by by governments and societies not having the mature conversations that are necessary. You know there's seven billion people on the planet. There's you know and there's shortly going to be more. Um, and the world's suffering has got to be managed in a in a in a twenty first century way, and it's not about it's not about guilt, it, it's not about impl implying that one group of people, one country, be it Britain or anywhere else or Europe, can can absorb the world's pain. Right. But we have to we have to we have to have the honest conversations, and part of that honesty, as you say, is sometimes holding up our hands and saying. We can't help that. Right. That's too big. And if that problem is going to be solved, then it's going to have to require a collective response from billions of people, not a few million. No, exactly right. Neil, we're out of time, sadly, but thank you very much indeed. Very thoughtful stuff, as ever. Uh, Neil Oliver, archaeologist, TV presenter, of course, of Coast, the show. Uh, also columnist in the Sunday Times uh, at the weekends, too. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's time for homeschooling because it's that time of the day uh, after the 12.30 news where we try and give you some education, uh, even if it's not just for your children. It might be for you. Yesterday, bizarrely, uh, we had an ice cream expert on talking about how to make ice cream, which sounded very, very easy to do, much easier than I ever thought it would be. Today, uh, we are going to talk to Isabel Kors, who's the owner uh, and chocolate maker at Dormouse Chocolates. Isabel, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you very much indeed. I suppose we should start with um, where do you get your chocolate from? Where do you uh, where do you source it from? So I actually don't source chocolate. I source cocoa beans. Okay. So I go a few steps back. Right. Um, most people do buy chocolate, but I buy beans. Okay. Um, and I buy them from 
farms all around the world. So at the moment, I'm working with beans from Guatemala, the Philippines, and a tiny, tiny island in Indonesia. And how do you choose where to get it from? Because there's lots of, presumably, lots of places where you could get it. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, it's all about the flavour of the bean. Um, we work with small farms, buying from um, from small farms, and we really just look at the flavour profile of each bean. So, for example, the beans we work with from the Philippines have this really lovely biscuity, oaty kind of flavour. Okay. And the beans that we work with from Indonesia taste like candied apples. Oh, really? And is that to do with the soil? Is it to do with the type of uh, the climate or what? It's a combination of things. So the soil is really important, as is the genetics of the bean. And um, so cocoa beans are very much like apples or grapes, and you get thousands of different varieties. Um, so yeah, we look at the, the genetics of the bean. Also, okay. the things that happen to the beans once they've been harvested have a massive impact on flavour as well. Okay. So when you get your beans, has anything happened to them be, from, from being harvested to getting to you? Yes, yeah, quite a lot of um, stages. So the most important stages happen at the farm before we get anywhere near them. So the beans are the seeds of the cacao fruit. Mm. So they come, um, so they're grown on trees and you get these pods which are about the size of an aubergine. Okay. Um, that sort of size. And when you split them open, there's a white fruit inside and that tastes like mangoes or bananas. It's that kind of really lovely tropical fruit flavor. And then inside that fruit, you get about 40 to 60 seeds. Mm. And it's the seeds that we're looking for to make the chocolate. Right. That sounds very exotic, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and and then what do you do then when it gets when 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 you get do you get the sort of aubergine shaped thing or do you get what's inside? No, no, no. The farmers do a lot more work for us before we um, we get to them. So the pods are harvested twice per year, and when the pods are cut open, the fruit and the seeds go into big fermentation tanks, generally big wooden tanks um, on the on the farms. And they go through a fermentation process, yeah. kind of like wine almost, okay. um, where the fruit turns into an alcohol that, and the acids from that permeate into the bean and change the flavor of the bean. So prior to being fermented, the beans are incredibly bitter. They don't taste anything like chocolate um, and they're not something you'd want to eat. Right. So the fermentation process brings out sort of the more chocolatey notes and the, the more floral fruity notes that you can sometimes find. And is that done at kind of room temperature, would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, it's generally done in big sheds um, on the farms. So we're looking at tropical room temperature rather than British room temperature. So between 40 and 50 degrees. Right. Okay. And it's, so it's quite um, a long process. I mean, we're already not anywhere near chocolate yet. And it's quite a long process, isn't it? No. It is, yeah, and that's not taking into account the five years it takes for the tree to mature um, into a point where you can actually harvest from it. So it's a big investment for a farmer to start growing cocoa. Yes, indeed. And, I mean, do you need to have a big sort of operation to do what you do, or uh, are you doing it in a, what you might call a sort of bespoke, boutique kind of way? Yeah, we're sort of working on a micro-batch level, so we can make sort of 10 kilograms of chocolate at a time. Um, which really isn't very much, um, when you, especially if you compare it to 
much bigger companies. Yes. And so what happens next after the fermentation process? So the fermentation process takes between four and seven days. The beans are then dried generally under the sun on big patios, again, at farm level. Mm. Um, in some parts of the world, they're actually dried in, in tunnels with fire yeah. to, because there's too much rain. Right. Um, but generally speaking, sun dried is um, what we're looking for. Um, then the beans need a few months just to sort of finish off the, um, the drying process and release any last sort of gases that are trapped inside them um, and just sort of mature, kind of like cheese. Right. Then they come to us in big 65 kilogram sacks. We sort through them, get rid of any that um, are broken in transit, that kind of thing. Right. And then we can start working. And so, what so do you, and, and what do you what do you make mostly? Do you make chocolate bars? Do you make cho small cho individual chocolates? What do you make? Um, we make bars predominantly. Okay. And um, so our sort of thing is we're looking at single estate beans. So we want to sort of preserve the flavour of those beans, um, and help people sort of compare and contrast. So people have very different tastes mm. when it comes to chocolate. Some people like really fruity flavours. Some people like them sort of more nutty, earthy chocolates. So. Right. We kind of span that whole range just by working with single estate. Okay. Fascinating. It's really fascinating. I mean, next time I eat a bar of chocolate, I'm going to be thinking, this has already been through some ludicrously long, uh, drawn-out process to get <laughs> to this point. I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah. in, in big commercial companies, you know, like, say, Cadbury's or something, do they also do all of this, or is is, is, is your speciality to do this? Um, every cocoa bean has to go through the same process um, to become chocolate. You can't just sort of pick something off a tree and then no. actually have it be chocolate. Okay. Everything has to go through the sort of fermentation, drying, roasting, and grinding process. Okay. Right. And then do you make milk chocolate and dark chocolate or, or just dark? I do. Yeah, I make milk dark and white chocolate. White chocolate. Now, I know you're talking. I'm quite a big fan yeah. of white chocolate. <laughs> as long as it's not Me a milky too. bar. Um, so tell us um, no. what you then do, though. So how, do you, so how would you make a milk chocolate bar, then, from what you've got? So we start with the beans. The first thing we do is we roast the cocoa beans. Um, generally takes about half an hour to roast the beans. And that just, again, helps develop more of those sort of chocolatey, cocoa-y flavours. And mm. um, quite often when we get the beans um, in their raw state, they, they smell very vinegary and, and sort of acrid almost. So right. we need that sort of roasting process to bring out more of the flavour. Then we go through a process called winnowing, which removes the shell from the bean. Yeah. So we don't want any of the shell in the chocolate. So we crack the beans open and we have a vacuum-powered machine which sucks away all of the husk. Okay. And so we're left with what we call the nib, and that's the centre of the bean, and that's what we use to make chocolate. Okay. And from what Once you were describing, we have... the, 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 was it 65 kilos you said you got this big block? Of, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, how, how, many, how many chocolate bars would you get out of that? Oh, that's asking me to do too many maths. <laughs> so generally, um, you need about 70 grams of bean to make okay. one bar of chocolate. Okay. So if anyone wants to do all those maths <laughs> for me. I'll figure then, it out. I'll figure so it out. Work out. Yeah. Give the answer. So, uh, and so, when you're, uh, so from this point on, how soon before you've got the finished product? Um, up to a month. Okay. So we've got we've got the cocoa nib, 
And that goes into a grinding machine, which is basically a giant automated pestle and water. You've got granite wheels and a granite base, and that grinds them down into a paste, almost like peanut butter. Yes. Um, and as you start to apply a bit of heat and a bit of pressure, the cocoa butter that's naturally present in the bean starts to melt, and you get a much more fluid product. Right. And at that point, we start to add sugar. If we're making a milk chocolate, we'll add um, some milk powder and a little sp- splash of extra cocoa butter just to help things um, move along. Right. Um, and then that grinding process will last. Generally, our grinding process is about 48 to 72 hours. It varies depending on where the beans are from and the recipe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we go through that grinding process. Then they come out of the machine. And well, for dark chocolate, milk chocolate doesn't need the aging process as much, but for dark chocolate, we tend to age the chocolate for about a month. Mm. And that just lets all the flavors settle down, any sort of more volatile aromas sort of dissipate into the atmosphere. Right. And then we're left with a block of chocolate that can be made into bars. Amazing. I'm told it's something like 900 and something uh, out of that uh, 65 kilo. Uh, that does pack. sound about right. So <laughs> nearly a thousand is, is about right. So well, yeah. it's fascinating. I don't think anyone listening to this would have any idea that it's such a complicated process. I, I just assumed you'd got, you know, you'd get some cocoa beans, you'd put them in a pot or something and you'd just, you know, turn on the, 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 the gas and heat them up and they would turn into chocolate. <laughs> Shows you what I know. <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I know. Well, it's a fascinating job. Did you train? How long did you train to be able to do all that? Um, it's kind of an ongoing thing. I'm always learning something new. But um, prior to starting up my own company, I mm. worked for a high street chocolatier um, and spent about nine months with them training right. um, before I was allowed to sort of make chocolate properly um, and spent a couple of years making chocolate with them. And then set off on my own. Wow. Well, it sounds like it's going very well. I mean, the great British public loves a bar of chocolate, so I'm, I'm assuming you'll always be doing uh, well enough in business to keep it successful. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. Isabel Cass, owner uh, and chocolate maker at Dormouse Chocolates. Go and try some because she's putting an awful lot of work into making them. It's incredible, that. I really had no idea. I wonder whether you are as impressed as I am. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.